here at the Blue Summit in Toronto, and Barbara Newman has been kind enough to sit with me and talk to me about the Blues Foundation. How are you today? I'm good, and thank you very much for inviting me. This is going to be fun. Well, thank you. I mean, I appreciate you talking to me. This You've gone through a whole year of this new role, I guess. But before that, I guess I want to go, go back to your background. You, you're from Memphis? I'm from Memphis. I grew up in Memphis. My, my parents were born in Memphis. Um, my mother's family goes back multiple generations to the mid-1800s. So I'm a Memphis girl. I've got that Memphis DNA in my blood. Tell me about growing up in Memphis. What is that like? Um, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and it was very interesting. I'll be honest. Um, by the time it was time for me to go to college, I was leaving Memphis and never coming back. You know, Memphis had this great musical heritage mm -hmm. that was wonderful in the 60s and early 70s with stacks and even the stuff that came out of Sun. Big, big music world there. But after Martin Luther King's um, assassination, the city sort of went through a really depressing time, and I found it to be somewhat provincial and limiting, and race issues were challenging, and I just felt the need to leave. Uh, now that I'm a grown-up, in concept, I guess I'm a grown-up, and I look back at it, um, I realize it was, there was a lot of value to what it was like to grow up there, but at the time living in it, I felt the need to go to something bigger. Can, can you tell me, when you said, I mean, obviously stacks and, and, and the the huge miracle musical heritage there, but when you were growing up there, is that is that taken for granted? Is that are you aware of that fact? Well, the it's Sun interesting. Records, no? I think most people in Memphis take it for granted. Not so much now because there's a legacy, but I think at the time, um, people took it for granted. If you weren't living and working in the blues or in the music scene there, um, whether it was soul, blues, whatever, you might not be aware. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I didn't fully take it for granted because I grew up with musicians in my family. Oh, okay. My mother's uncle, my grandfather's identical twin brother, who lived in Memphis, was a charter member of the Memphis Symphony Orchestra. Oh, wow. He was a violinist. His older brother had, they were born in Patterson, New Jersey, and his older brother was a conductor of the Newark Symphony back in the 20s. And wow. so there was this musical legacy in my family, and Uncle Eddie was also a sessions musician. So, you know, I grew up with my parents going, hey, listen to this great new album. It's called Shaft. And we would put it on the radio, we'd put it on the record player, and uh, we'd be listening, and Mom would say, shh, shh, there's Uncle Eddie. You know, not there's Isaac Hayes, or listen, there's Uncle Eddie, shh, they're the strings. So that's sort of how I grew up, with this awareness of it, um, and being taken to concerts, and being taken to um, mostly symphony-type stuff. But, you know, Danny Thomas did his Shower of Stars for St. Jude, and that had a whole conglomeration of musicians performing, and I would be taken to rehearsals. So for me, I, there was an awareness of it that goes back to being very young, seven, eight, nine years old. Wow. Um, did the blues mean anything to you back then? The blues, when I was very young, you know, elementary school, not so much. Middle school, um, I actually attended a school assembly where they brought Furry Lewis to perform and teach. He, Furry Lewis did a Blues in the Schools program for me, <laughs> for lack of a better explanation. And was it, was it that? Was it a Blues in the Schools it program? Was, it was not the way we would think of a Blues in the Schools program now. Um, I think it was just, I went to a, at that point I was in a small, private, all-girls school, and it was an educational opportunity to learn something about our community. And, you know, he came along and... Uh, a woman, Ma Rainey too, it wasn't the original Ma Rainey, she came and they taught us about 12, you know, 12 bar blues and uh, 
the whole bit. And so you remember this? I remember this. I remember we wrote a blues song together as a school, <laughs> and we you know we had the first two lines that were you know. So we're going to sing this. We're going to sing the same thing twice, and now it's going to change, and then we're going to go back and sing it again. So yes, we um, we all participated in that. I have very vivid memories. I can visualize the assembly room where we were. We were actually in the gym. I know exactly where I was sitting. I remember what he was like up on the stage. So we can ask you to sing it. No, you cannot <laughs> ask me to sing it. That would not be pleasant. You would have everybody turning off uh, immediately. That's the nice thing. I don't. I love the music. I appreciate the music. You would never ever want to hear me sing the music. Can I ask you, when you said that you were kind of tired of what was going on in the city, can you maybe elaborate on that, what you were feeling and um, what was going on? What I was feeling, honestly, is, um, so without getting too political, I tend to lean to the left. I'm a very liberal, open person. I believe in diversity. Part of the reason I love music as much as it does is because I think it spans gender, it spans race, it spans ethnicity. Um, and Memphis in the 1970s didn't feel that way to me. Mm -hmm. It felt very um, divided. It was very insular. Um, there was a, um, a sense that the, the city didn't understand what it had culturally, and it wasn't doing much to embrace it and grow it. I think it's a completely different city now. I love Memphis. I am so glad we came back to Memphis. We actually, I left, I went up east to college, went to college in New England, spent another seven or eight years in New York where I met my husband, where my daughter was born. Tell me about that. Tell me about leaving Memphis and going to <laughs> Northeast and, and especially living in New York because it's New York is quite different. It's quite different. Well, I have family from New York. Okay. So I wasn't, I myself wasn't isolated. My parents very much encouraged me to branch out. You know, they always wanted me to come back to Memphis. They loved their city, but um, they understood that I needed to see some. I was your typical 17 or 18 year old. You know, where you live is never good enough. It's right. the whole uh, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz story. But there's a world difference there's, between New York City and Memphis. Yes, there is. And I, I bypassed New York to live to start by going to Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. So New England, quick access to New York, quick ac access to Boston. A lot of uh, Easterners who embraced me and thought it was very cool that I was the one from somewhere where there weren't as many of us and that I had that really weird accent that I sort of have a little bit of back. Um, we would have, you know, speech lessons in the dorm as a joke, you know, it would be, hey, okay, tell me where you're from. I'm from Memphis. <laughs> They'd say, no, you're from Memphis. Tell me where you're <laughs> So we would play these little games. But, but I don't um, really hear a heavy Southern accent. No, my husband's a New Yorker and I lived okay. out of Memphis for probably 12 or 13 years. I lost the bulk of it. Um, if you have put me in a room with a whole bunch of Southerners, it'll start to come back around. So uh, I'm a chameleon when it comes to my <laughs> accent, I guess. And then, so you worked for a bank in New York. Yes, I did. I and worked for um, a middle market lending company. I worked for a large, actually British bank. It was Na uh, North um, National Westminster Bank USA. Went through a training program and I worked in the middle market lending department in New York. Um, I handled the um, West Side, mostly garment. But very interestingly, as music just sort of with synchronicity kept entering my life, um, I was the account officer that um, ended up banking pa the power station, the recording studio. Right. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And I read you, you met David Bowie. I met David Bowie. That was my big, uh, the biggest name that I met while, while I banked him. And I was only there for about three years, maybe three or four years. Um, but that was, a, that was a big deal the day that I went over to see the owners of the studio and he happened to be there recording. So yeah, that, that, would be a big that was a very exciting <laughs> moment. That was another one you don't forget. And then your husband is an entertainment lawyer? Yes. He and I met. Uh, his father, 
who I had worked with before I went to the bank. I had a very short stint where I was working in the accounting department for um, a large jewelry manufacturing company, and his father was an executive there. He fixed us up on a blind date. So that's the story behind meeting my husband, a native New Yorker um, who had um, already had his um, CPA license and, and a master's in taxation, and we had our first date on a Saturday night, and he went to law school. He started law school on Monday night, night school at Pace University. Right. Um, and one of his mentors was um, an uh, entertainment attorney who handled Aerosmith and Blondie and a whole host of people. And so when Bruce graduated and got his degree and his license to practice law, Marty would send him smaller entertainment accounts that, he, that, were too, that weren't for, big enough for Marty's firm. Right. And so Bruce got his teeth, you know, cut his teeth on that and then expanded from there. So he's an entertainment attorney he handles, you know, the whole gamut. Right. A lot of the Memphis soul stacks people, the hip hop and rap people in Memphis, and a lot of people in the folk world. So I would imagine he's a music lover. He is a music lover. He has his own radio show at, on our volunteer radio station in Memphis. Um, he is a huge music lover. So you decided to come <clears throat> back to Memphis. I don't know how he felt about it. It was his decision to oh, come back really? to Memphis. Yes, he was the one that led that charge. Okay. Because I was never going back. <laughs> So how, how did that happen? How did you feel about the it? The reason that happened, and, and actually I ended up embracing it with him, is that um, we were living in New York and our daughter had been born. It was the late 80s, and New York City was going through a very difficult time. It was very expensive to live there. It was very difficult to live there. It was not an easy place for a family. We were living in Westchester County. We were working in Manhattan. Um, the commute was difficult. And we said, you know, we could probably live an easier life somewhere else. He had his own practice. He was just getting started. We were in our 20s. We were babies. And he said, I can hang out a shingle anywhere. Technology was just advanced enough that he could, he felt like he could manage his New York clientele and still live somewhere else. And he suggested that we come back to Memphis. He loved Memphis. He'd grown up in New York. He'd gone to college in New York. He was a city boy, Brooklyn, Queens, through and through, and said, I'm ready for something new. I'm ready to see the world and live somewhere differently. And so he's the one that had fallen in love with Memphis and the Memphis culture and the Memphis feel and the Memphis vibe and what we call that grit and grind. You know, and the things like you can go into a Kroger grocery store and he'd never seen anything like that in New York City where they had these tiny little supermarkets and then, you know. Yeah. So he said, let's give it a shot. You know, and, your, and your family, your family, it was a very easy transition. He, um, we moved down to Memphis. We were able to, to purchase a nice home for our family. Uh, we were able to live very comfortably. Um, he put a shingle out, as he said, found an office and started practice. And my parents living there made a comment to somebody that we were moving there and this is what Bruce did. And the next thing you knew, the Memphis Business Journal was knocking on his door. They interviewed him and he had, there was an article about this new entertainment attorney who had just moved to Memphis. Um, and a lot of the Memphis industry had just moved to Nashville. There were these holes in, right. the, in the late 80s and early 90s because what was of what was happening in Nashville with the big rise of the Nashville music scene. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, here's this young local uh, entertainment attorney, and the wow. doors opened, and people started calling him. And that opened the door for the two of us to start producing concerts as so fundraisers. So it, it actually started, um, we, the first one we did was for a day school that one needed a fundraiser, and Bruce said, well, why don't we do a comedy concert? He loved comedy, and we produced a comedy concert with Alan King. We brought Alan King down to Memphis and rented out the Orpheum Theater, where the finals of the International Blues Challenge yeah. are, <clears throat> where the Handy Awards used to be held, and sold the place out, and sort of got a feel for how to do this. 
And the way it shifted into music is that he had been in New York and had gone to see a Woody Guthrie retrospective of some sort and came home. I was home with little children. I didn't travel with him on that trip. And he came home obsessed about Woody Guthrie. Just, that's all he could talk about, Woody Guthrie, Woody Guthrie. Reading everything he could get his hands on. We were listening to Woody Guthrie at all hours in the house. And at the same time, he had become friendly with Oscar Brand, who's a Canadian, um, just passed away recently, and a folk singer, because he had his Body Air Force album from when his dad had been in the Air Force. And he randomly called Oscar and said, hey, um, I need a new copy. And they developed this telephone friendship, and Bruce started talking about how he wanted to do something Woody Guthrie in Memphis. And they ended up writing this Woody Guthrie sort of retrospective of our own and brought down um, Richie Havens, Odetta, Oscar, Tom Paxton, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, wow. and um, Josh White Jr., all to Memphis to do this story of Woody Guthrie and his music. So when he puts on a show, he puts on he a puts show. He puts on a show. Yeah, we don't, yeah, when he puts on a show, we don't, and we, we laugh about it because <clears throat> we sort of look at each other and say, we didn't know what we were doing. We just did it. Um, I think that's sometimes the smartest way to do something. You don't know yeah, what don't, to be scared of. Yeah, if you don't, you might not of. do it. Exactly. Yeah. And we sold that out and had a great show. We filmed it. It was um, produced, filmed by our local PBS station. It was aired on PBS as well. Wow. And it created contacts and open doors for us to meet other people and start attending Folk Alliance conferences. And really that's where, he, where a lot of his work shifted into folk. And the concerts that we did over the years really focused more on folk than what would be called folk than Americana. Um, and he would handle the back of the house. You know, he would negotiate the deals with the artists. Um, he would deal with lighting and sound and that type of thing. And I would handle the ticket sales and uh, the seating and all the publicity. And we just did it for different not-for-profits in the city. We had Guy Clark. We did a show with Rodney Crowell. We did one with um, Jesse Winchester, uh, Dave Van Ronk. Um, so so you had this, and I know that you did that, but in your work life, you mm -hmm. weren't, you were doing both no, in my for work, profit yes. and not for profit. In, in work. my work life, um, I took a little break after our daughter was born from the banking world and from the finance world. And then we had another child. We have a son as well. They're about two and a half years apart. They're grown-ups now. Um, and um, sort of helped Bruce with the things he was doing and did a lot of work in the not-for-profit sector on the volunteer side. Um, and then went back to work when the kids were older on a part-time basis, sort of financial management for a restaurateur who owned a catering company and a, a number of restaurants, um, and sort of got back into the workforce there. And then as the children were, I think my daughter was already in college, and my son was well into high school, you know, they were driving and they wanted me around less, probably than I wanted to be around. Um, I went back to work full time as the executive director of a synagogue. So it's a membership organization. Um, it's not-for-profit. It faces the same struggles that any not-for-profit faces, even though it's in the faith world. And that's sort of where I balanced the volunteer work and on one side and the actual professional work on the other to build that not-for-profit awareness and knowledge. So the question is, how did you become the CEO of the Blues Foundation? Right. So that's, it sounds like this weird little path mm -hmm. that doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, I had been at the synagogue for about eight years, and I'd hit that place where it was time for something new. Um, I wasn't getting – it had become stayed for me. I walked in and the organization was in trouble financially and I was able to clean it up and restructure and it was just sort of doing what it needed to do and it was time for something different. So I was 
leaving anyway, not sure what I was going to do next. And Bruce said, you know, there's this job opening up at the Blues Foundation. And honestly, I said, I don't know what that is. <laughs> what is the Blues Foundation? I was not mean? aware of the organization. I had been to the IBC. <laughs> we actually housed a band from Israel. Um, so I knew what the IBC was, but I never made the link between the IBC and the Blues Foundation. Um, I knew there were these Blues Music Awards, but I also hadn't made the link. I'd seen the press on the Hall of Fame opening, but I hadn't made the link. I didn't have all my ducks in order on understanding. And I said, let me see what this is. And I started reading and researching and said, you know, this sounds like I have a little piece of everything. I don't know that I've got the whole picture, but I've got the not-for-profit experience. I understand how boards work. Um, I understand the music industry. I don't really know the blues industry intimately, but that could be good because I don't have any preconceived notion, which mm -hmm. means that it's sort of like you go in and it's fresh. Um, I said, why not? Let's see what happens. And the more I researched it, the more excited I got about it and the more interesting it became. Can I ask you, was there a point where you just thought, I got to go after this? Yeah, there was. Because it was probably, I think that the search was open for a good six months or more. Um, on the website of the Blues Foundation, the search was there. There was a date they were closing down the search, but they were asking for resumes and cover letters, and they had very, very well-conceived. I don't know who put the plot together on how they did the search, but it was very well done. I was quite impressed with that, which said, well, they function the way I do. It was organized. It was structured. It made sense. Um, it looked as if the organization had was solid. I wasn't going to go in to fix something that was broken, which I did not want to do. I'd already done that once before. And I remember it was probably just about two weeks before the deadline. And I looked at Bruce and I said, you know what? I'm going to go for it. If I've got nothing to lose. If I'm not the right person, then I'm nowhere worse off than before. Right. Um, if I am the right person and it feels good, then I'll go for it. If after meeting with them and interviewing with them, it doesn't feel right, I don't have to accept it even if they offer it. So why not? And um, really did the research and wrote the cover letter and put the resume together and um, it just felt right from the very first interview. Oh, that's good. And so you come into this world that you're not totally familiar with, but you, you have some understanding of. What was the, the thing that struck you the most? Like, what surprised you the most when you in, in your first exposure to the blues world? Um, I wasn't surprised by it because it was something that had been explained to me, but to live this sense of community that the blues world is um, was really heartening mm -hmm. um, that it doesn't feel to me as if the blues world is competitive it feels as if the the community of blues fans the blues societies the the blues industry and the musicians really want to work together to make sure that this music is heard and that people are aware of it um, and that it stays front and center in people's minds it doesn't become a historical relic, uh, relic. Right. Um, and so that was not surprising but it re was reinforced by actually being in the middle of it. People were warm and welcoming and kind and open. Um, I think that what surprised me that I'm working on is how can we help more people embrace it on a more direct level. Um, I know that people know it's there and they love it, but I don't know that they really connect directly by saying, oh, that is blues and that's what I love. Right. They just know this is great music and I love it. With your experience with the Folk Alliance, can you tell me, is there a big difference between the two worlds? Or what are the similarities and what are the dissimilarities? Um, the folk, well, the Folk Alliance is doing work 
it's less, I, I could be wrong about this, but it feels as if Folk Alliance is less fan-based. Mm -hmm. um, we do a lot of work with blues societies, which mean that um, we're dealing with local blues scenes where uh, oftentimes it is blues lovers who are working behind the scenes to make sure the blues are heard. And it's blues lovers and fans that want to be a part of coming to our events and supporting the blues. Folk Alliance, I think, is more industry-driven, although we are also industry-driven. Um, we also are a smaller, we have a smaller net. Folk, both Folk Alliance and Americana Music Association, which I've been working with both of them, they have a much broader net to fill. More subgenres fit under that category of folk or under that category of Americana, and we're one of them. Right. So that's another piece. We're a little more directed than they are. And would I be correct to say that maybe in, in, in your world of the blues, it is more international than maybe the Folk Alliance might be? Interestingly, I think it has been, but I think they're going that direction. Okay. Um, they've rebranded themselves from what used to be a North American organization to Folk Alliance International. They are opening the doors to beyond what we would consider Greenwich Village folk to world music. Um, they want the blues to be a part of it, even the electric blues. Um, I had a conversation with their executive director not long ago that, because um, I want the blues to be a part of the folk world. I want us to be recognized in all categories where we fit, not to be siloed in our own little world. Um, and their, their attitude is blues is a folk genre, and so we need to embrace it. So you've, I think you started um, October a year ago. Mm -hmm. So you've gone through one major calendar year, right. and you've experienced all the major blues events right. that, that happened that's put on by the foundation as well as the different festivals mm -hmm. around the world. Tell me your impression of the first year and, and, and what it's taught you. Um, the first year has been the best way I, <clears throat> excuse me, the best way I describe this is I feel as if I jumped on a horse, grabbed hold of the reins and just let it run and I hung on for dear life um, to, to try to not fall off the horse. Um, and the horse might have stumbled here or there or missed a jump somewhere, but we held on. It's been a phenomenal first year. I'm really fortunate because the board is amazing. They've been supportive and collaborative and helpful. They really want the organization to succeed. They want me to succeed. They see us in this together as do I. We're all working as a team. It's not one, it's many that are making it happen. And the, the staff is fabulous. Um, they work very long hours. They are co committed to what they do. They hold themselves to a very high bar. And uh, my predecessor, Jay Seeleman, um, has been lovely and helpful and eager to help and assist with transition. He actually stayed on board in a consultant role for the first year. And when I came on board, he was already in the midst of the BMA submission process and the KBA award decisions and the Hall of Fame decisions. So I really didn't have anything to do with those those committees last year. I'm going through that for my first time this year. So I figure by the time I get through the BMAs, I really will have seen everything once. Um, and it's been a great year. We're, we've done a lot of work in a year. We have a brand new website that we've launched. Um, that was huge, a new uh, customer relationship management system. We're starting to partner with uh, festivals and promoters and 
and musicians as best we can to help get the word out about what's going on. We want to continue to make sure that our events are front and center and premiere, but that behind the scenes, we're working to network the fans, the industry, and the um, musicians. So, I don't know if this is a fair question, but what will you change? Or what, what would you, change might not be the right word, but when you come into this, and, and obviously it works with a board, but is there something that you saw that you'd like to either focus differently or move in a different direction, or does it not work? I don't, I don't know that change, I agree with you, I don't think change is the right word, because um, when Jay came into the organization, which was almost 15 years ago now, the stories that I've been told were, we're gonna flip a coin, and we're either gonna shut it down because we're out of money, or we're gonna try one more time. And the coin flip went to try one more time. <laughs> And he really fixed it. Yeah. I mean, he those events are solid. The structure of the way the organization operates is solid. From my perspective, um, I want to do a lot more work develop on the development. And when I say development, I want to find sponsors and partners to help bring more resources into the organization so that we can um, offer more on the technology side, um, have more people in the office to do the work. We really run on a very, very thin staff. We run a very tight budget. I'm committed to running a budget that's responsible so that we don't fall back to where we were right. 15 years ago with payables that we couldn't pay and juggling you know, how we were gonna manage that. I'm very committed to that. But I think that we can take another step towards that networking to figure out how to help the musicians and the industry um, be seen and known and heard. So partnerships with Americana and Folk Alliance are the first place to start. Finding those natural niches where the blues fits and where other people can be brought into the blues where they might not have been in the past. So Folk Alliance this year and the Toronto Blues Society is working with, we're partnering on this, they're having blues showcases at Folk Alliance this year. Um, we're looking to bring health screenings to Americana. They, they had blue showcases last year at Americana. We have partnership arrangements with both of those organizations now, um, which I think are gonna be valuable so that when promoters and festivals are at those events looking to book acts, they're gonna hear blues and realize that blues fits in their tent and we can expand the awareness that these blues artists are performing. They won't be limited. And I think that helps the genre tremendously. I mean, if we can, through our, CR, through our um, database now, our new database, which is very robust, and through our website, offer opportunities for um, festivals to offer discounts to Blues Foundation members, to drive more attendance, more people come to the festival, the festivals have more resources, they can hire more musicians, pay the musicians better, help with transportation, same with the clubs, and it brings more awareness, then everybody wins. What's, what's the biggest challenge, you think? I mean, the world is changing drastically. The music industry has changed drastically in the last 10 years. Um, attendance in, in bars and whatever has changed drastically. What do you think is the biggest challenge for blues? Um, it's interesting because there's this balance going on. It feels to me as if blues is seeing a resurgence. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, people are talking about blues more. When the Rolling Stones put out an exclusive blues album and they're talking about blues again as their career has arced. You know, they started off with the blues, they did their thing and they're coming back to the blues. People are talking about it. <coughs> We've invested in social media. So our reach um, through social media has grown tremendously. I think our reach was in the low hundred thousands a year ago. Our reach 
is now in the many, many millions. We have more than 200,000 Facebook followers alone. And so we're watching people who might not be members of the Blues Foundation, they might not be members of the local Blues Society, but they're obviously engaged with the Blues. The Grammy organization, the Recording Academy, has added a second Blues category because there was such a need for it because more Blues was being produced right. that they now have both a contemporary and a traditional category and we're helping musicians get their music submitted to the Grammy Association as well as to ourselves. So there's a growth on that side but on the flip side, the local clubs are struggling, getting people to show up. I think technology is helping, but it's also a hindrance. People can watch concerts on their TVs at home. They don't have to go out. Mm -hmm. You know, They don't have to pay to go into a club or a concert. So I think there's issues there. We don't ever want the live music scene to stop. That's key. There's a difference between recorded music or watching it in your home on TV and actually being with a crowd and being part of the experience that's important. Um, and I think also, as everybody knows, and this isn't a secret to anybody, the change in the industry formats with streaming and with um, streaming services has changed the way musicians earn their income and the way that labels earn and, and pay for what they do. And nobody really knows where that's going to lead. We know right. musicians are having to tour a whole lot more to put food on the table, but nobody's quite sure what the long term is going to be. It, Technology has moved faster than we can, not we, us, the Blues Foundation, but anybody can directly keep up with. Um, so there are a lot of un unanswered questions out there still. Can you tell me in the year that you, that's passed, or a year and a few months, tell me a moment that you just thought, wow, this is so cool. Oh, gosh. And I'm sure there have been few. There are many of them. Um, I think that... Last year, the first probably three or four months, I didn't do any traveling and I stayed put. Um, and I met people by telephone and got ready for the IBC. And when the IBC really hit, and I was just standing on Beale Street, and we, I'd been going in and out of the clubs with my board chair, Paul Benjamin, and we'd been welcoming people and talking to people and all these new faces and all these new names. And I think there was just one of those moments on Beale Street and then again at the Orpheum during the finals that I went, this is amazing. We had 257 acts at the International Blues Challenge last year and almost 900 musicians performing. And it was you can't understand it unless you experience it from start to finish. Um, and everyone who'd ever been had told me this, but I had to live it. That was one of those wow moments. Um, I think the BMAs were another wow moment, sitting in the room with just one after another amazing musician getting up on that stage. And everybody's accessible. And, ev you know, I'm talking to John Mayall, who had just been inducted into the Hall of Fame one moment, and then the next moment I'm talking to a festival promoter and the next moment I'm backstage and Beth Hart is hugging me, asking me, hey, how'd I do up there? It was like, it was surreal. That's the only way to describe it. And it continues to be surreal. Every experience is unique and exciting and, um, and fun and um, that's just the best way to describe it. It's very, uh, encouraging to me. I think there's a lot out there and people are just wonderful. So you made a good choice. I think this. I made a good choice. There, now I will say that I have my moments. Um, right before IBC when those 80 hour work weeks are happening and uh, I go home just dead tired 
And I wake up the next morning going, oh gosh, how am I going to make it tomorrow? Um, but it's all worth it. It's, it all feels worth it when I take a break and just step back from it. So for people who know the Blues Foundation, we know what it stands for, but for people who have no idea what the Blues Foundation does, can you explain, can you maybe share what you do and what they should know about the Absolutely. Blues Foundation? Um, the best way to start is to share our mission. So I'm going to try to remember it. It's a lot of words. So the Blues Foundation mission is to preserve blues heritage, to celebrate blues recording and performance, to expand worldwide awareness of the blues, and to ensure the future of this uniquely American art form. That's basically what we're doing. We're a not-for-profit organization and we are mission-driven. The way we do that is through seven key programs. So we have the International Blues Challenge, the Blues Music Awards, the Blues Hall of Fame, and the Keeping the Blues Alive Awards. We also run Generation Blues Scholarships. We're giving, we give scholarships to youth under the age of 21 to attend summer camps and workshops to develop their blues talent. Um, we also oversee the Heart Fund. We provide resources to musicians and their families in need for medical care. We also provide uh, resources to families in need to make sure that blues musicians can have dignified funerals. And we also are a network for the Blues in the Schools programs worldwide. So we are an area where we have resources. We don't run the programs. They tend to be run on a local level, but we provide resources. Beyond that, we are also now beginning to do work, and this is where we're taking it to the next level, to connect, be a connector, to be a hub, so that we might not have the archives, but if you need to do research, we can help connect you to the archives. We might not be recording the music, but if you need information, we can give you a database of where the labels are that are producing blues music, or where the clubs are, or where the festivals are, or who the publicists are, the booking agents. Um, we're trying to network, and we're trying to network the fans. We're trying to find ways to offer the fans access and content. So for instance, um, Tedeschi Trucks Band was just in Memphis. And I got a phone call from AEG Live, and they said, they're coming to town. We'd like to help spread the word about pre-sales. Great, that's a wonderful opportunity for Blues Foundation members to get a benefit for membership. We'll send an, an email out with a link to everybody in Tennessee, Missouri, Arkansas, and Mississippi. It helps you. They get the access to pre-sales. They get the access to early purchases, to better seats. And that was a benefit to membership. So we're also a membership organization. We encourage people to join us. We're at www.blues.org. Um, memberships start at just $25 per year. For an individual, they go up from there, higher level donations as people want to give. It's tremendously important to support what we do. And in turn, we're going to be looking to do these directed offers to our members to provide opportunities on our website for content down the road, uh, maybe webinars or private concerts, something you can stream, streaming events, mm -hmm. things of that nature. Um, and so we encourage people to be a part of it. Come to our events, and if you can't come to our events, uh, hopefully with technology you can participate long distance through the internet and through the digital age that we're in right now. Wonderfully done. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> you didn't stumble at all. It's, <laughs> it's like the you, morning. It's, it's like, the morning. <laughs> it's like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's yeah. wonderful. Thank you very much. I, I know you're a very busy person. I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me for, on this podcast. Well, so. I appreciate your helping spread the word of what we do and that we're here. We're in Memphis. It's the home of the blues, but we're very much internationally based. Come to Memphis and visit us. That's right. You can just go there and also check out the Blues Right. Hall the International Hall Blues Challenge is coming up in about 10 days. Uh, we'll have 260 acts. Along the street, we're adding conferences this year. 
Um, we're gonna have film, we're showing the film Sidemen. We're gonna do a conference on the healing power of the blues. We've got uh, Walter Trout, Kenny Neal, Marie Trout and Patty Park speaking about that. We're doing seminars on recording CDs, on, we're doing master classes, um, and then our usual challenge events every night, and many, many showcases. Great, thank you so much for doing this. I thank really you. appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.